You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. Hi, and welcome back to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. This is episode 39, Put Down the Scalpel save the appendix. This week, I wanted to continue the story of the lymphatic system and an organ we don't really think about a whole lot unless we start to have digestive issues and abdominal pain, and that's the organ of the appendix. This is an organ that has been widely misclassified, and essentially it's been treated as a trash organ, which as I'll lay out is a really, really bad way and a lazy way to think about this organ because it turns out it provides a very important and crucial function to not only the lymphatic system, but your overall immunity. And I'm going to lay out a case for why the appendix should be saved instead of cut out. And I want to lay out some nutritional components that can help you if you have inflammation of the appendix and nutrition that can help you keep it regulated. The appendix is is attached to the large intestine, to the end of the large intestine, right below the small intestine. It sits on the ascending colon, and it's this little finger-like structure that kind of hangs off the end on the lower right side of your abdomen. Now, the pathology surrounding the appendix has to do with predominantly inflammation or blockage. People would have acute appendicitis, which would just mean inflammation and fill up with pus, and it would cause severe abdominal pain. And so the solution was to cut it out because the medical field didn't really know what it was for. They thought it was this kind of leftover evolutionary organ that wasn't really necessary anymore. And that's still how most people are viewing this organ, which is a very, very big mistake in my opinion, because there's a lot to this little part of the ascending colon. For whatever reason, for decades and decades has been overlooked. The surgical procedure for appendectomies goes back to the mid-1700s, where doctors would cut out a little piece of this intestine and you would cauterize the tissue back up and you could live. And that's very true. You're not going to die if you get your appendix out. Well, some people do. There is a mortality rate associated with appendectomies. Um, people get acute appendicitis at the rate of about 300,000 people a year, which is about 7% of the population. So it's a significant number of people that have appendix issues and need them surgically removed, which should tell you something. Anytime you see a relatively large percentage of people in the overall population having issues with the small intestine, you should immediately start thinking about nutrition and diet and lifestyle, because that's where the majority of your nutrition is getting extracted from. And so if you have inflammation of the midgut, which is the ascending colon, and it's affecting this little appendage, that should be a red flag in your mind automatically. But with any organ that you can surgically remove and not have extreme effects by losing, meaning You can kind of live your daily life almost normally. And this happens with other organs too, such as the gallbladder, right? That gets ripped out if you have gallstone issues or some type of infection in the gallbladder. But anytime you surgically remove anything from the body, it's going to have to compensate. And there are consequences to be paid. Even if you can't really detect it in your daily life, there are ramifications for taking out 
organs always. And that's something I don't think a lot of people think about because they're not thinking about this as an entire system, an interconnected system that factors in and plays off of one another constantly. And this is very true of the appendix. It wasn't until very recently that doctors and researchers started looking at the appendix and asking what it was actually doing there. That's an important question to ask, not to demean the necessary measure of surgery in the appendix. When it becomes that infected, you're going to need to take it out, but there's a reason why it's becoming infected, and there's a reason why it's there to begin with. If this was some weird passive evolutionary trait, it wouldn't have been perpetuated through the mammalian line. It would have, if it was completely unnecessary, it would have been scrubbed out. Mammals have an appendix for a reason. And the reason is housing bacteria. It's the storage tank for tons of different species of bacteria that feed your microbiome when your microbiome is down or unbalanced. I'll say that again. It's a storage tank for excess bacteria, and microorganisms that supply your microbiota when it's unbalanced. By removing that, it disrupts your microbiome, the entire system of your microbiome. And there's an important immunological function to the appendix as well, because 70% of the immune system is housed in the microbiome, is housed in the gut. And when your immune system gets flagged, when the macrophages get flagged for antigens, in your bloodstream, in your body, it kicks up the lymphatic system. And if you've listened to the lymph episode, hopefully you remember that the lymphatic system controls your fluid balance in your mucous membranes. And it turns out that the appendix is an important mucous membrane. It has lymphatic tissue inside of it. So what happens is when you get sick or you have some type of dysbiosis in the gut, the appendix will send out bacteria to combat either infection or microbiota disruption in your system. And if you don't have that ability, then it's a lot harder to get your GI tract and the microbiota back on track and stabilized out when you have an infection or when you have some type of bacterial overload in the small intestine. The research on this gets a little bit squirrely because often when they're looking at different bacteria in the appendix, it's because they're taking it out of people. Though a lot of times you'll find papers and research that measure the bacteria in a disrupted appendix. It's really hard to find data on healthy individuals that have measured the different types of bacteria in the appendix because it's not something doctors ever really look at. But there are many, many different species of bacteria in the appendix, even when it's not functioning well and they have to surgically remove it. Now, my speculation is you would see a lot different types of bacteria and possibly more bacteria in a healthy appendix than you would an inflamed, disrupted appendix. Just like you see far more healthy and beneficial bacteria in a healthy small intestine versus a disrupted and small intestine. So the assumption is, and I'm not the only one assuming this, but the assumption is the appendix is basically your bacteria storage tank or your house for surplus bacteria that your body can call upon and utilize when needed, which functionally makes a lot of sense. Just like you have a storage tank for water when you have a well, so you're not constantly just pulling water from inside the earth when you need to use it. You can store 2,500 gallons or you know whatever you need to store. So you give your well a chance to recumulate and build up water reserves. The appendix is doing the same type of thing 
for your bacteria in the small intestine. It's a holding tank for excess beneficial bacteria that your body can utilize when it needs it. And so the fact that we are just coming around to this conclusion is a bit terrifying. And again, the idea that the appendix is pointless is still the dominant idea. That's why we're still doing about 300,000 surgeries a year. Because at the first instance of inflammation, they tend to just cut it out. But what it does is when you get sick or when you're on antibiotics or when you have intestine issues, it makes it harder for the body to compensate for those. Because it's like you're trying to draw straight off the well. You're trying to draw straight off of the small intestinal bacteria that are already compromised. So you don't have ample reserves to deal with what dysbiosis you've got going on in intestine to begin with. There's a downstream trickle effect to taking an organ out, always. And my hope is, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, we'll start to understand this a little bit better. And we'll start to understand that the more you can prevent chronic disease and inflammation especially with nutrition and lifestyle, the better your organs are going to function and the better they're going to senesce. In other words, age. And this is a great example of a microbiome issue and a chronic one at that. There is a reason why the appendix becomes inflamed to begin with. Generally speaking, it either has an infection component to it or a blockage component to it. So a lot of times if viruses or bacteria are unbalanced in the gut, either in the small intestine or the large intestine, or the lymphatic system, the appendix will have to work a lot harder to stabilize all that. And it can become inflamed as a result, similar to the gallbladder in its function. Anytime an organ has to kind of work overtime, it has a tendency to become inflamed, like any other tissue in the body. The other pathology the appendix can take is some type of blockage. Um, sometimes it's deposits of either calcium or crystalline-like structures that will block up the appendix in its ability to regulate lymph and fluid movement inside because, again, lymph is coming in and out of it constantly. And if it gets blocked up, it will become inflamed and has the possibility of rupturing. And that's exactly what you don't want because then you get bacterial seepage into the gut and you end up with sepsis. The location of the appendix is a really important thing to remember because it sits at the end of the large intestine of the ascending colon, but the small intestine entrance is right above it. So it has a pretty short pathway to the small intestine where primarily that's where all your bacteria is stored for nutrient breakdown and assimilation. And I've covered a lot of that already in previous episodes, but there's a reason it's right there at the end of the small intestine. From an anatomical standpoint, you would want kind of a reservoir of bacteria that builds up at the end of the large intestine and of the small intestine because you want to prime the small intestine with an influx of beneficial bacteria so it can digest and break down nutrients into primary and secondary metabolites and shuttle them into the, the lymphatic system and into the bloodstream. There is a very significant prevalence of people having an epidectomy and then having some type of other metabolic syndrome such as IBS or SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's very, very common for that to be a trickle-down effect of having the appendix out. In both of those instances, those chronic conditions are an 
unbalanced amount of bacteria and microorganisms sitting in the small intestine or large intestine and disrupting the GI tract. That alone should be enough evidence for people to question whether or not so many appendectomies should be going on per year. There's a lot you can do nutritionally to balance the GI out. It means reducing your omega-6 fatty acids, which are inherently pro-inflammatory, increasing your omega-3s, cutting out a lot of the processed foods, and switching to probiotic and prebiotic foods, such as raw dairy like I covered last week, and eating more fermented foods throughout the year. You can do regulation of the lymphatic system with hot and cold contrast. There are many, many different lifestyle and nutritional things you can do to keep metabolic health in your life. Another major aspect that affects the appendix and the large intestine in particular are proton pump inhibitors. It's a class of medications that is used for reducing gastric enzymes and reducing effects of GERD, which is gastroesophageal reflux disease, so basically acid reflux. So it suppresses the amount of stomach acid you have and kind of binds that up. But what that does is when that food dumps out of the stomach into the duodenum, it isn't digested well. That chyme isn't mixed extremely well in the stomach and then dumped into the small intestine. And when the small intestine has to struggle to try to utilize chyme that isn't kind of ready to be in the small intestine, it puts a burden then on the large intestine and the appendix sits right at the end of the large intestine. So you're going from your stomach to your small intestine to your large intestine with food and nutrients that haven't been properly digested. And so it, it's a lot harder for your body to utilize those in other tissues and absorb them. And then your that entire portion of the digestive tract gets a bit stressed. And so any type of medication like that can have profound effects on what nutrients are being broken down into first and secondary metabolites and then being utilized for the rest of the cells in the body. Because while it's true that most of the nutrients get utilized before they hit the large intestine, there's still room for bacterial breakdown in the large intestine. And what that is, is actually fermentation. So you get a lot of carbohydrate fermentation in the large intestine. I talked about fermentation a little bit last episode, and it's important thing to realize that your body is fermenting foods without the large intestine, or if you have major disruption in the large intestine, you won't have good fermentation in the hind gut. And that leads to a lack of extra beneficial bacteria, extra probiotics and prebiotics to be stored in the appendix and then to be shuttled out when your body needs them. And that's where that appendix comes in because it needs to supply bacteria for the large intestine and small intestine. There's crosstalk between both intestines. So it's managing both of those and dumping lymph in and out and fluid balance. And so they're very much all linked together. So to kind of short-sightedly just remove it at the first sign of an inflammation can definitely factor in microbial imbalances, which can lead you down the road to something like SIBO or Crohn's or even type 2 diabetes. So all that to say, this is an important piece of the GI tract and one that shouldn't just be prematurely removed because there isn't a lot of information on it, or it's a bit confusing on why it's there to begin with. It needs to be more nuanced than that, and it's important to realize that it 
has a function and it has a role and it's there for this particular reason to balance and to feed your intestines your lymph and ultimately your immune system okay so there's my long-winded explanation of the kind of functionality of the appendix and why it should try to be preserved at all cost now i want to flip into what we can do to support not only the appendix but the small and the large intestine and your lymph and ultimately your immune system with nutrition now if you go to google and type in you know what diet is best for my appendix you won't find much you'll find recommendations surrounding after you've had your appendix taken out you'll find recommendations surrounding eating whole grains and fermentable foods which is all fine and well but if you have dysbiosis of either the small intestine stomach or large intestine again fermentation is going to be compromised if the stomach or small intestine is already compromised because fermentation happens in the large intestine and so unless the gi tract is already really healthy eating a bunch of grains and quote-unquote prebiotic foods that will then later ferment themselves into probiotic foods and get stored in the appendix could be a bit damaging and ultimately inflammatory so my recommendation would be this if you're struggling with a little bit of inflammation or gastric bloating switch to foods that are a little bit easier to digest a lot of times high vitamin a foods will be good things like squash salmon liver carrots those are going to be easy for your body to break down they're easily digestible foods that don't tax the digestion now if you have acute appendicitis probably the best thing to do would be to fast and that's really probably the only thing you could do if you're dealing with some pretty bad inflammation but honestly functionally speaking since the appendix sits at the end of the line at the end of your large intestine usually it gets compromised when something before it is already compromised and it's a slow kind of compounding issue where the lymph gets blocked the appendix and large intestine have to struggle a little bit it causes inflammation and then that feedback loop is closed off so really it's about keeping the stomach and the small intestine in good shape and then ultimately the large intestine and the colon will be in good shape as well if you're dealing with bloating and inflammation anywhere in the gut incorporating foods like ginger root and turmeric and chaga mushroom and shiitake mushroom there was research done in university of miami where they used an extract of shiitake mushroom to treat colon polyps which are essentially cysts that can turn cancerous right in the colon at the rectum which again you're dealing with a large intestine issue at that point so if you can keep the large intestine regulated with some of these food items and medicinal mushroom extracts and things it's going to keep the lymph and the potential blockage those pathological factors at bay so even though no one's recommending nutrition to treat appendicitis or to prevent appendicitis it stands to reason that keeping the stomach the small intestine and the large intestine healthy is only going to be beneficial for the appendix and if you can do those things it's going to be beneficial to the microbiome the neurotransmitters that are being created in the gut and shuttled to the brain it's going to be beneficial to the lymphatic system and the immune system all of that is going to help keep the organs supplied with adequate nutrients which is only going to level out how things age and biologically senesce it's keeping in the forefront of your mind about feeding the organs nutrients so they can function optimally should be the main goal in your diet it shouldn't be losing weight 
or counting calories. That can be a side effect of keeping a healthy regulated diet and feeding the organs, but it shouldn't be the number one goal. And I've talked about this a lot, but that's why I suggest keeping a five kingdom approach by eating all five kingdoms of life, plant, animal, fungi, bacteria, and protist. You're going to undoubtedly vary your species variety in the microbiome, and you're going to have a plethora and a surplus of nutrients and beneficial bacteria. It's only going to benefit you in the long run. The more species you can get in, the better off you're going to be in the long run. And better yet, if you can time it seasonally, then your body is not going to have to work as hard to assimilate those out-of-season foods. I'm going to keep hammering this and drilling it over and over and over again because this is one of the most important things you can learn about nutrition. It's that from a seasonal perspective, your body has an easier time digesting and utilizing nutrients. This isn't talked about enough. No food is inherently bad, but eating the same food over and over and over again, month after month, year after year, will build up an excess of primary or secondary metabolites that those plants or animals or fungi or algae or bacteria give off, and it can disrupt the balance in your microbiome and in your organs. And this is how things age prematurely, and this is why organs fail early. Get variety in your diet, and you limit the chances of chronically overeating nutrients that can build up in your tissues and potentially cause harm. Your organs need true variety, not just phenotypic variety. You don't need to eat all five kingdoms with every meal. You can ebb and flow with the seasons. Here's an example of that. So right now, the salmon run is going on in the northern hemisphere. You're dealing with a fatty, very high omega-3 fish. If you consume that through late summer and into fall, your body's going to store a little bit of high omega-3 inside your cells and inside the tissues. Because as you go into winter, if you're eating wild game, that's a lean meat, not much fat. You're dealing with amino acids that are predominantly high in glycine, which is muscle tissue. And unless you're eating a lot of connective tissue, that methionine-glycine balance can be out of proportion a little bit. But with an influx of omega-3s, it balances it all out. So there's a seasonal rhythm to this way of thinking and eating that protects your body and your organs from excess senescence or excess damage from a chronic consumption of single metabolites or secondary metabolites. But once you tap into this rhythm, it's a lot easier to manage because you almost don't have to think about it because everything's laid out for you already right? This has been going on for way longer. You and I have even existed. And all you have to do is start tapping into it. And the question of what to eat, when to eat, all that fades away. People have been doing this for hundreds of thousands of years. And we came in with modern farming techniques and disrupted that. And it's about time we start to reintegrate that back in. Because if we don't, our health is going to continue to decline. And there's a time and a place to limit the species variety of food you're getting in. If you're dealing with some type of immune system issues, chronic inflammation, you know, something like rheumatoid arthritis or eczema or you know excess bloating, 
anything like that, limiting species diversity can be a therapeutic aid for an amount of time. Because what that does is anytime you do an elimination type diet where you're eliminating the majority of species that you're putting in for a short time, it suppresses your immune system. That's the effect that it has. It changes the microbiome in a way that it suppresses the overall immune system. So you're making different amino acids that turn themselves into proteins. You're making different neurotransmitters and you're changing your epigenetics, how your genes are being expressed, what's being regulated in your genetics, in the blueprint of your body. Food will change that and that overall has a suppression effect on your immune system and immunity and that can calm down immune system issues. But you don't want to do that for really long time use. You know, it might be fine even for a couple of years if you have really bad immune system issues. But eventually, you're going to start to degrade your nutrition. It's going to start to pull out nutrients that your body is eventually going to need. And it's going to become devoid of adequate nutrition. And so you'll need to incorporate foods back in. And so for the average person, getting good variety, good species variety, is going to be best for the long term. If you're dealing with chronic issues, then it might be good to do an elimination type diet for a period of time. And it's going to depend on what it is. It's going to depend who you are. It's going to depend on your environment. But there is a therapeutic benefit to limiting species diversity. But don't do it for too long because you're going to end up with nutritional deficiencies. And what that's going to do in the long run is it's going to affect the organs and how they function and how the cells divide. And it's going to age things. It literally will prematurely age your organs and tissues if you don't have adequate nutrients. You know, very similar to how you can see people age if they have a chronic lack of sleep. If you have a chronic lack of nutrition, you will age faster and prematurely. And what that means is you will age at different rates. Your organs will age at different rates. It could be your skin. It could be your liver. It could be your gallbladder. It could be your pancreas. It could be your appendix. And you're not going to know. It's going to depend on your genetics, your biology, your environment, all of the above. But you want to try to even things out. You want to smooth all this stuff out as much as possible. And the way you do that through nutrition is through adequate nutrient and species diversity and timed seasonally. That's how you keep organs healthy. And so when looking at research about the appendix and saying that there's zero information about what you can do nutritionally to protect the large intestine, that's kind of BS because there's plenty of information out there. It's just no one's ever looked at it properly. But this is the way to think about it. This is how you do it. Obviously, the roadmap is going to be a little bit different depending on who you are, where you live, what you're doing. But this is the type of roadmap you should be seeking if you're looking for this type of effect, which that's precisely the effect that the majority of people should be looking for, because we have some major metabolic health issues in the world today, all over the world. And this is the way to stop it. You're never going to stop it through technology either. Your organs and how they age could give a rat's ass about technology. The technology is already there. It's built into your environment. It's built into your ancestry. It's built into your actual literal genetics. The more you feed that, the better and the smoother things are going to get. The best thing to do for your health, your family's health, and generations down the line is to tap back into this ancestral way of eating because that's what your organs recognize. 
That's what supports them. And that's what's going to support you and your future generations down your family line. All of this is tied up in nutrigenetics and epigenetics. But technology, it has no place in this. There's no way we can synthetically manufacture our way out of this. The best thing we can do is to place ourselves into two worlds. Get a foothold in both. Get a foothold in the technology and get a foothold in some ancestral practices. That's the only thing you can feasibly do in regards to nutrition and eating. Every food, every bite of food that you take into your body is genetic information for your organs and cells to utilize. As adaptable as your microbiome is, it only recognizes things that are derived naturally. And I'll give you a very relevant example of this. Glyphosate, which is what they use in Roundup. So all of the GMO crops that are used in conventional farming practices, they were deemed safe by the FDA because plants only contained that certain metabolic pathway that the glyphosate worked on, and humans don't contain it. And so with that information, they approved the use of glyphosate in food products that we eat. But what they didn't factor in is that our microbiome is made up of plant and fungal organisms that have that same pathway in them. So we do have that pathway within us. And what it does is it creates antibiotics in our microbiome. It disrupts the microbiome. So we'll say it again. Technology is never going to get us out of this, ever. We have the technology. It's there in the ancestral practices. So use it. And luckily, they just outlawed glyphosate. But they're going to be using other things as well. So be careful, but understand that there's a way out of that. At least there's a better way to move forward. But it's not through consuming products that disrupt the microbiome and disrupt the GI tract because you're going to end up with prematurely aging organs like the appendix. To move forward properly, we're going to have to reconcile our past and look to it for actual wisdom because it stood the test of time. It's still here. Glyphosate isn't. You see what I'm getting at? Told me more things like glyphosate, but you have the information and you know what to do. And the more you can feed your microbiome, the better breakdown of nutrients you're going to get from your stomach into your small intestine, into your large intestine, into the appendix, and into the rectum. And all of that digestive tract feeds the rest of your body. It goes into your lymph, it goes into your blood, it goes into your organs, and it goes into your cells. It's really not that complicated, but we love to overcomplicate it. And we love to sell, you know, the perfect human diet. But you know what? The perfect human diet doesn't exist. All you can do is feed your body based on your environment, based on your own genetics, and based on what you actually want to accomplish with your health. Because every bite of food you're taking it's just information for your body to assimilate. It's just genetic information. At the end of the day, that's all it is. And that can be a really hard thing to suss out, especially with all the noise going on. But if you learn one thing about nutrition, it should be this. You should recognize that there is 300,000 years of the current Homo sapien that has worked all this out previously through generations and generations of us. We've perfected it. The body of knowledge is there. All you have to do is look at it. And I'm going to continue to do my very best to break all this stuff down as much as I can and kind of systematically go through 
different parts of the body and different ideas, and I'm going to try to get this information to you. And I don't know it all, but it's a place to start. And in regards to the appendix and there being quote-unquote zero nutritional information in the way of protecting it, realize that you don't need double-blind control trials to take care of your health and your body. You don't. <laughs> there were no double-blind control trials a thousand years ago, but yet people were just as healthy, actually healthier. That's the information you really need. Okay, that's going to do it for this week. As always, thank you so much for listening. Eat a species-rich diet. Go outside. I'll talk to you guys this next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to talk to me personally, go to ancestralelements.com slash community to get access to the forum. We go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail, and you can connect with other listeners. 